You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. Well, I will do my absolute best to get uh, the content out to you that I can, but we've got some some sickness running through the house right now, which is kind of unfortunate, as you can probably imagine. Right now, it's hit, hitting our two littlest, which always, which always sucks, especially when the little, little one that can't really express what's going on has it. But anyways, um, all that to say, we'll see how she goes. But I do want to start today with um, a talk about Christian Watson. I kind of want to just do an end-to-end look at um, Christian, because... Although pretty much every single thing is unbelievably positive, I want to start with one potential negative. And I know nobody wants to hear it, but I, I just let's just do this. It'll 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 set up a nice backdrop to how nice the good things are. But I saw a stat about Christian Watson that I can't find now, but it's it's pretty straightforward. Easy enough to look up myself real quick. Christian Watson has seven receiving touchdowns on just 25 receptions. Very hard to find this stat, so I had to kind of do it myself. Um, it's amazing how much work I have to do myself for basic statistics, but touchdowns per reception. Christian Watson is number one at 28%. We're talking about guys with a minimum of 40 rece- uh, targets, I think, which is what Christian Watson has. Second place is Gabe Davis at 17%. 17 He's at 28. That's how crazy that is. Um, Devontae Adams is at about 15%. You got guys like A.J. Brown, Travis Kelsey, Cole Komet, whatever. Uh, Well, not Cole Komet, but guys who are, let's say, reliably high-touchdown guys. So the absolute peak here that you would expect from elite, 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 elite players is 15%. The average across the league is 6.54%. Again, Christian Watson is currently at 28.00%. You say, well, okay, but maybe he's just a freak. Haven't we figured that out? Um, I've mentioned just kind of off the cuff that things like this are not reliable, but I went and found some data on that. 
Here's an article called The Most Predictable Wide Receiver Stats. That is to say, which stats, when you look at this year, are most predictable, in other words, are most likely or least likely to correlate to next year's stats. The lowest correlation of any stats for a wide receiver is touchdown rate, which is touchdowns per target. Now, I did touchdowns per reception, so I guess I could change that so we can see. It's not going to change a ton. just kind of cuts everything in in half. Christian Watson, 17.5%. The next highest is 11%. Only two are at 10% or higher. So here's my point. There is less than zero reason to believe that Christian Watson can maintain this or that he'll ever be able to continuously do this. So the question is, what is Christian Watson when you strip away the touchdowns? 40 targets, 25 receptions, 401 yards. And if we give him a respectable touchdown rate of 8%, he's at three touchdowns. So 25 receptions, 400 yards, and three touchdowns. Now, maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. We'll get into that in a minute. But just to be clear, and mathematically, the correlation, so for example, the highest correlation, which we're going to look at next, the ones that, that, you, that you can expect to some degree of certainty to correlate next year, and again, the, the correlation one is a direct correlation. It will be exactly that next year. Zero being there, it has complete randomness. Average targeted air yards via next gen stats 0.69. Touchdown rate 0.14. A lot of the high correlation stats are, are kind of up and down. So, for example, some good news the, the highest correlation is average targeted air yards, right? Targeted air yards, Christian Watson in 2022 ranks third, 14.7 yards. So that's a statistic that you can look at and trust with a high degree of certainty will stay high. Not that it has to be exactly 14.7, but if there's a stat that he um, probably will maintain, it's that. The problem is the stat doesn't carry a lot of value in and of itself, like touchdowns or yards or anything like that. Targets are just it's just how far down the field are you targeted. So that's kind of the problem with that. If you look at the next highest, it's targets per game. Now, this one's going to be a little deceptively low for Christian Watson because, again, he hasn't really been playing all that much. But if we look at his last four games where he has been more involved, it's about six targets per game. Six and a half, I guess you could call it seven. I don't know. We'll call it six and a half because that's what it is. But even at that, that would put him about 45th. So that's outside of even the top 32-ish. And again, you could say, well, it doesn't matter. He's more of a deep threat. It's not about targets and all that. Okay, fine. But what do we know so far? The touchdowns aren't going to carry over. He's targeted further down the field than most wide receivers. He's not getting a ton of targets per game based on wide receivers. The next highest uh, correlative stat is receptions per game, which is 3.75 receptions per game. His 3.75-ish would put him about 59th. He's tied with uh, Mac Hollins, Donovan Peoples-Jones, Tyler Boyd, and Russell Gage. And after that, the last stat that's still pretty high correlation is receiving yards per game. He has 313 yards over four games, averaging about 78.25 yards. Well, it's not about. It's it's exactly 78.25. I don't know why I keep saying that. That one isn't super terrible. Um, That would put him 14th behind Amon Ross St. Brown and ahead of Chris Olave. So if I were to sort of build out 
Christian Watson's 2023 expectations over 17 games, and let's just assume he plays all of them, based on what we've seen over four games, but completely reducing his touchdowns down to something more realistic. It would be roughly 111 targets, 64 receptions, 1,330 yards, and six touchdowns. So, well, that's insane. He's already got more than six touchdowns. That's the point. That's entirely the point. You cannot expect that to continue. There's almost zero, zero, zero correlation between touchdowns from year to year. Beyond that, what Christian Watson has done, and, and first of all, four games, very small sample size. Second of all, he is at a rate right now that has never been touched and probably never will be. Even the man in quite the hour, Randy Moss, who Christian Watson is on pace to touch his rookie season. You know what his um, touchdown per reception rate was? 15.88, which is what I said about Devontae. He's about at that this year. Now, that's a really high... It, it, let, let's give him the 15%. Let's say Christian Watson is Randy Moss, and he's going to get 15% as a career average. That puts him at 10 touchdowns. So even still, at an insane rate that we can't know for sure, but let's give him a really high rate, 111 targets, 64 receptions, 1,330 yards, and 10 touchdowns, which is great. But I'm just saying, the, the idea that, oh man, he's going to have like 30 touchdowns a year. No. 20 touchdowns a year. No. Not to say never. Randy Moss had a, a year with 23 touchdowns, but the year before that was three. The year after that was 11. Again, the whole, you can't trust touchdowns year to year. In fact, if you want to see the fluctuation in action, here is Randy Moss's touchdowns per year. 17, 11, 15, 10, 7, 17, 13, 8, 3, 23, 11, 13, 5, 2, 3, 0. Actually, that's, no, I'm sorry. 2010 was just five. The 230 was with three different teams. 2012, three. Obviously, there was a cliff that he fell off after 2009 with the Patriots when he was bouncing around all over the place. I mean, even Devontae, um, he had a, about a three year stretch of being f- kind of consistent, but his first three year or first two years in Green Bay, three touchdowns, one touchdown. Then he had his three semi consistent years of 12, 10, 13. Then it was down to five, then up to 18, then down to 11, and then so far this year, 12. So he's already surpassed 2021 um, and is on his way back. There's just no consistency with touchdown numbers. Question is, what is his rate going to be? Devontae, by the way, who is at 15-ish right now, his career average is 11%. And that dude got a lot of touchdowns. So given Christian 15 is stupid. We're talking Hall of Fame touchdown per reception numbers. And again, even with that, you're talking about 10 touchdowns. Now, how does that compare to the NFL, right? So we're talking, okay, 64 receptions, 1,300 yards, and 10 touchdowns. What What is that? That's 2021 Stephon Diggs. Now, Stephon Diggs is much higher volume. He had 109 receptions. And again, we're saying Christian Watson was 64. So it's probably a little closer to like Tyler Lockett. We had 1,200 yards and eight touchdowns, but 73 receptions. But in terms of production, yards and touchdowns, it's Stephon Diggs. Now, Stephon Diggs ranked eighth in total in uh, total yards, and he ranked uh, eighth in touchdowns. So we're not talking number one, but we are talking top 10 wide receiver in terms of production. 2020, you're looking at maybe DK, uh, excuse me, Calvin Ridley, kind of DK Metcalf, I guess. DK Metcalf had 1,400 yards and 12 touchdowns. Calvin Ridley, 1,309 touchdowns. 1374 and nine touchdowns, and he did it on 90 receptions. It's kind of staggering how low. I mean, DJ Moore is the only one that's actually kind of close to what I'm projecting for receptions. 
He had 66. Again, we're, we're talking 64 for Christian. Everybody is hundreds, 90s, 80s, um, a, a rare 76 by A.J. Brown, 66 by D.J. Moore. But Calvin Ridley was seventh in terms of, uh, well, let's just put it this way, 1,300 yards would have ranked ninth in total yards, and 10 touchdowns, you'd be tied for eighth. So again, consistent top 10 receiver. And again, sometimes it's not, this is just sort of the baseline average. Some years it could be 1,700 yards and 15 touchdowns, and he's the number one wide receiver. We're not far from that. If you're on average the eighth receiver, you can absolutely expect to be the number one at times. And from that standpoint, this is overall very encouraging. I mean, the fact that we're, we're projecting out based on his four years, again, the, the, here's the negative. The touchdowns, which are his biggest asset, are not to be expected to be replicated. The negative is that the targets and the receptions are kind of low. The positive is that the yards are pretty high. And, and, and the thing with the, the touchdowns is we can't know that the touchdowns will be low we just know that it won't be as high as it is. So it's just going to be what it is. And he's probably going to be a higher touchdown guy than, than, usual, than, than most. So really, what are we looking at in terms of production that we can trust? 1,330 yards, assuming a healthy Christian Watson. That's production we can trust. And that is, generally speaking, a top 10 wide receiver in the NFL. Again, we, we can't trust the touch. I mean, what, what is his touchdown rate right now? Just looking at receiving touchdowns, because that makes it easier. Uh, over four games, he has three, four, five, six, seven touchdowns. Yeah, we're looking at almost 30, I mean, 29.75 touchdowns. We're talking 30 touchdowns in a year. You know that's not going to be maintainable, right? But I'll tell you what, let's, let's also do this as a parting thought on the touchdowns. I, uh, I pulled pretty much every wide receiver um, since forever to find touchdowns per receptions. Minimum, you have to have 40 career touchdowns, though. Just a random, arbitrary thing that I said. Remember, Christian Watson is at 28. The highest in NFL history ever, 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 23%. That was Hugh Taylor, uh, 1947 to 54. If you say it has to be beyond the 50s, then it would be Billy Cannon from 1960 to 1970 with 19%. Uh, if you're talking at least the 80s, then you got to drop all the way down to like 13th place or 12th place. Mike Quick from 1982 to 1990, who was at um, 16.5%. And if we're talking more recently, it is the man himself, Randy Moss, 1998 to 2012, 16.02%. Um, somewhere on here is Rob Gronkowski, who would be much more recent, 14.88% uh, for, for Gronk. So 28%, the highest in the last 30 years, is Randy Moss at 16 as a career average. I mean, come on, you know Gronk, right? He was just shy of 15. And again, Devontae's at 11. So... Um, if you expect him to have a really high career average, you should expect it to be around 10, 11, 12%. Devontae's at 11. If you're asking for more than that, you're um, being a little unfair, I think. And again, 10% drops him to about six. So you could, you could call it seven. If you wanted to bump it up, 6.4 is 10%. Anyways, with that said, why don't we have a little bit of fun and look at some things based on, because again, Watson and his total stats aside from touchdowns, 
are not necessarily killing it. But that's total stats. The question is, where is Watson over the last four weeks when Watson's been an actual receiver? Again, he jumped from like 10 snaps to 50 snaps. So it's it's not me just cherry picking like, well, he did, the, the first couple don't count because he didn't break out yet. No, he literally wasn't put on the field. So from the moment they said, you are the guy, you are going to get as many opportunities as, as the rest of these guys. You're going to be sort of the number two. You're going to get 50 opportunities per game. We'll see what you can do with it. Since that moment, where is he? In terms of his receiving grade, Christian Watson ranks 24th. He's tied with Tyler Lockett, 26th in his overall grade. Receptions, which we already said is pretty low. He ranks 33rd, tied with Wilson, Alan Lazard, interestingly enough, Tyler Lockett again, which seems like it might be a pretty good comp moving forward. Um, Donovan Peoples-Jones, Traylon Burks, Isaiah McKenzie, DeAndre Carter. A lot of guys with that amount. Um, If you look at yards, which is where things start to look up, Christian Watson is eighth. How does he jump so much? Because his yards per reception... Actually, you know what? I forgot to filter some of these guys out, but most of those were totals anyway, so it shouldn't matter. Christian Watson is third at 20.9 yards per reception. He's right where MVS was. MVS is at 20.5 yards per reception. Um, Pretty staggeringly high yards per reception. You say, well, that's, you know, what are the odds that that's replicable or whatever? That seems way too high. It does seem pretty high, and it may not be 100% you know, replicable or whatever. But my first thought when I looked at that was, first of all, is anybody that high? And second of all, is it guys that are just trash? You know, they're just yards per reception guys, but they're not that good. The two highest yards per reception players last year were Debo Samuel and Jamar Chase, both of them at 18% or uh, 18 yards per reception. Those are the two highest. Then you go back to 2020, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, 20.9 yards per reception. So again, he is he is MVS. He's just a souped up MVS. So yeah, it's definitely possible to have 20 yards per reception on a season. Go back to 2019, there were three, A.J. Brown, Mike Williams, and Mikko Hardman. And then obviously you look at touchdowns. Christian Watson is number one over the last four weeks with seven. Devontae Adams has five. The next highest is Tyler Lockett with three. So Devontae is crushing the field right now. Nobody has more than three. In fact, um, only... Eight guys have more than two. He's got five. Watson has seven. What about yards after the catch per reception? Christian Watson is 16th. The other thing to point out is he's higher than all other Packers in these metrics. Lazard has a couple more receptions. Um, actually, they're tied in receptions, but he has more targets, the same amount of receptions. So he's tied for, so he's number one in targets, tied for number one in receptions, number one in yards, number one in yards per reception, number one in touchdowns. Number one in yards after the catch per reception. If you look at yards per route run over the last four weeks, Christian Watson is number four in the NFL. Again, very uh, solid stat. It's Devontae Adams, then Amon Ross St. Brown, then CeeDee Lamb, then Christian Watson, then Terry McLaurin, Tyreek Hill, Traylon Burks, Chris Olave, T. Higgins, DeAndre Hopkins, Justin Jefferson, Darius Slayton, DK Metcalf, Garrett Wilson. I mean, is this not a list of the top wide receivers? And who's smack dab in the middle of it is Christian Watson. Average depth of target, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, 19.7. Second highest, Christian Watson, 19.2. How about longest reception? Christian Watson is tied for second with 63 yards. Also second most drops, but we don't need to worry. Hey, Stephon Diggs has the most drops. Nobody's worried about him. As I've said, a lot of guys have 
a lot of other guys that are high in drops. Um, well, Marquez Valdez Scantling, Justin Jefferson, George Pickens, Jalen Waddell, Randall Cobb. I mean, when Justin Jefferson and Stephon Diggs are both two of the top drop guys, considered to be the top two wide receivers in football, Stephon Diggs considered by some to be the number one wide receiver. He has six drops compared to Christian Watson's four. I'm just saying. If you look at it as a percentage, Marquez Valdez-Scantling is number one. Christian Watson is number two at 21.1%. Randall Cobb is number three. Two of the top three drop guys in the NFL right now over the last four weeks are Packers. That sucks. And I don't know what's going on with Randall Cobb. Contested catch percentage, Christian Watson is 13th. However, 10 guys are at 100% because they have very few opportunities. Let's say you need a minimum of three contested catch opportunities. You've got um, A.J. Green is number one at four out of four. Then you have George Pickens at 87.5%, seven out of eight. Then T. Higgins, six out of seven. Then Christian Watson at five out of six. First downs, Christian Watson is tied for 11th. Again, number one in Green Bay. First downs. Again, this should be a Lazard and Randall Cobb special. Even if we say that they've kind of fallen off or they're not really that special, you still expect them to be the trust guys, the guys that come up clutch to to convert that that, uh, first down. It's not. It's Christian Watson. Watson has 14. Lazard has 11. Randall Cobb has four, which is insane to me. I mean, last year, that was like his whole thing. That's what I had said is, is he's, he's such a reliable, you know, third down conversion guy. He has four, one per week. Passer rating when targeted, Christian Watson is eighth. So all the way down the line, Christian Watson is our top wide receiver, just in, in like every single possible category. Highest overall grade, highest receiving grade. Most targets, tied in receptions for number one. Um, most yards, highest yards per reception, most touchdowns, um, most yards after the catch, highest yards after the catch per reception, highest yards per route run at nearly three, which is insane, highest average depth of target, longest reception, um, most contested catches, highest contested catch rate, uh, most first downs, highest passer rating. The only areas where he's not the top guy is obviously drops, uh, missed tackles forced. There's only been one on the entire wide receiver group in the last four weeks, and it was Alan Lazard forced one missed tackle. And then Lazard has run more routes than Christian Watson, which honestly works to Watson's favor that he's done more with less, but it's not by much. In fact, over the last four weeks, Christian Watson has run um, 107 routes, Alan Lazard 120. So Lazard is is the number one, but not by much at all. And he's closing the gap so that this past week, Lazard ran 31 routes, Watson ran 30. We'll see how things transform after the bye. We may see Christian Watson on the field more than Alan Lazard coming out of this bye. I don't know. What about compared to rookies, though? Because remember, this is all impressive, but we're talking about against guys that have been doing this for a long time. This is Christian Watson's first, essentially, first four games. So who is the most targeted? Christian Watson. He's tied with Chris Olave, who has the most receptions. Christian Watson is tied for second with 15. Chris Olave is the only one with more receptions. Who has the most yards? Christian Watson does. 313 compared to Garrett Wilson's 269. Highest yards per reception? Christian Watson, followed by Rashid Shahid at 18.5. Who has the most touchdowns? Watson. He has seven, two, four, six, eight, ten. He has seven compared to everybody else's ten combined. Overall PFF grade, Christian Watson is fifth, which again is 
solid considering when he started the season, he was the lowest graded receiver in the NFL. Christian Watson's receiving grade ranks fourth. Um, yards after the catch, he's second. Yards after the catch per reception, he's second behind Garrett, Garrett Wilson. Yards per route run, Christian Watson is number one. Average depth of the target, Christian Watson's number one. Longest reception, Christian Watson is number one. Most drops, you betcha. How about contested catches? Well, Sky Moore technically is higher as a percentage with uh, 100% because he caught one of one. After that is George Pickens, as I said, 87.5. He caught seven of eight. Christian Watson is five of six. Highest passer rating, Christian Watson, 139.9. Traylon Burks is second at 125.0, followed by Garrett Wilson, 123. Uh, a lot of guys over 100. The only guys that aren't Wandale Robinson, Drake London, David Bell, Jahan Dotson, and Alec Pierce is the lowest. So I guess in summary, depending on where you're at with Christian Watson, you can either pump the brakes or continue to get really excited. Um, I'm assuming most people understand that the touchdown rate is not necessarily maintainable. But aside from that, it's all good news, right? And and any slight bit of, bit of disappointment that, oh man, he's not number one or uh, 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 don't forget the guy is a rookie who's essentially played four games. This is all good news. And yeah, maybe, maybe the, the yards per reception will drop also, and it'll be down to like 15, in which cases, um, you know, he's barely scratching a thousand yards. And now we're talking 960 yards and and six touchdowns. Well, that sucks. Well, yeah, it does. Got to throw to him more, I guess. And that is something to keep an eye on moving forward, because again, remember, he's the number two wide receiver. Of all the guys that we listed who are top 10 in yards and touchdowns and all that stuff, how many of them are number two wide receivers, would you say? How many of them run less routes than the second best wide receiver on their team? So there's... There's As much as there's opportunities and, and reason to believe that some of these good stats are going to come down, there's also reason to believe the opportunities will go up. Um, they're going to find more ways to utilize them. Christian Watson's going to be you know, uh, developing as a receiver, giving him more times to be open, as well as more opportunities to find ways to get open. So even though you know we started this whole thing saying, well, here are the reliable stats, even the reliable stats are somewhat unreliable because he's so new to this. He hasn't really been able to set a baseline so that we can take that and move forward. Now, by the end of the year, maybe we can look at it a little bit, and it'll give us a slightly better picture. But if I told you that he's going to get, let's just call it 1,200 yards and seven touchdowns, would you be upset by that? I wouldn't be. I'd be pretty jacked up about it. Considering coming into the season, we didn't know he'd be doing anything other than being a massive disappointment sitting on the bench, and you know, maybe in year three he'll be able to do stuff. I'd say we're on a pretty good track here. Anyways, um, why don't we take a break? Patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy is where you can support this podcast directly. Fertile Ground Ranch Discipleship Ministry is the charity that we'll be supporting. It is the ministry that my dad founded. He's been working on it for forever. If I had to put a timeline on it, I'd say roughly 15 years, a little bit more than that. And uh, it finally has kind of come to full fruition and is kind of happening rapidly. Spent probably the first 15 years being an idea, and then suddenly they have property, they have a farm, there are people there, churches are all involved, the the court system is involved and working with them. They got animals on the farm now, which is cool. Last time we, we went there for the grand opening, obviously there were no animals there, but it's a beautiful property. Anyways, why don't we take a break? We'll be right back. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. 
So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, so all the rage is with the decision, apparently, of Jim Leonard to not return to Wisconsin. It really seemed like it was headed in one direction, and that direction was he was going to return. It sounded like they were very interested in having him back, and it sounded like Jim, you know, I mean, he loves it there. He always wanted to be there and stay there and everything, but um, for whatever reason, I guess he's decided that, um, well, whatever reason. I mean, the, the, the reason probably is he stayed there hoping. I mean, his, his dream of dream of dreams would be to be the uh, head coach of the Wisconsin Badgers. Now, interestingly enough, you could look at a guy like Jim Harbaugh. Now, Harbaugh was never a coach at Michigan, but that was always his vision. And what did he do? Well, he coached in college for a while. He worked his way up, right? University of San Diego, then Stanford. And then what did he do? He jumped to the NFL. Now, it's a little bit un- uneven because he was, uh, he pretty much jumped in as a head coach in college. I mean, he was, I mean, day one quarterback coach of the Oakland Raiders, then head coach of San Diego. Then he becomes head coach of Stanford's. Uh, uh, university, and then as a head coach of the 49ers before kind of working his way back. But the point is, you can still see a path. It's not like he has to completely give up on it. What he needs to do is get his reputation up. He has a really good reputation right now, but he can go get a head coaching job somewhere in college. And, and, and if he can do a good job with that, turn that into maybe a job with Wisconsin whenever that opens up. And that might be five, six, seven years. Who knows? But just stay in the game, but don't just stay sitting as a defensive coordinator. I mean, it's one thing to just follow your passion and be happy and sit in there if that's all you want to do. But, I mean, if you ever want to really... I mean, this is your opportunity. There, There is also a path through the NFL. He could be a defensive coordinator in the NFL today. Now, if it's me, I would probably rather look for a head co- coaching opportunity in college than a defensive co- coaching, defensive coordinator opportunity in the NFL. But that's going to be up to him. First of all, is just the money. I mean, he can probably make quite a bit more 
as a head coach somewhere. I mean, not not guaranteed, but maybe he could make what five million dollars as a head coach of a of a fairly sizable program, as compared to what a million dollars as a defensive coordinator. Beyond that, it just has more prestige. I mean, you know what it's like being the head coach of a major college. I mean, the the, the amount of power that you wield, the reputation you gain. I mean, the NFL is a major machine, but you're just a, a, a tiny piece of that machine. If you're the head coach of a college football program, you are you're like a walking god in that place. And maybe that's maybe that's more than he's wanting. In in which case, you know, again, a, a million dollar salary to be the defensive coordinator of oh, I don't know, say the Green Bay Packers might seem somewhat appealing. And honestly, that's pretty a pretty lateral move for Jim Leonard. I think he was making a million and a half as defensive coordinator of the Badgers, so he would have to be matched. That he'd probably make a million and a half. Or, or maybe you get a raise, but I mean, that's, you know, $2 million is about the maximum that any defensive coordinator is going to make in the NFL. It'd be hard to imagine he would get that, but who knows? Obviously going to be in high demand. The big question is, though, is this the right decision? Now, to be clear, I'm the wrong guy to ask about this, because I don't, because what it ultimately comes down to is, number one, having a very firm understanding of what Jim Leonard does in Wisconsin schematically, and I don't. Number two is understanding the person. The guy that he is, the leader, his work ethic, all that stuff, and none of us know that stuff. And and third, which there's some overlap here, but trying to figure out how much of that is going to translate. His ability to lead college football players as defo- as opposed to NFL football players. His 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 scheme in college compared to his scheme in the NFL. The ability for those things to translate, I I don't really know that either. But let me take my best stab at this because I've gotten questions and will continue to get questions about this. So doing some reading on um, Jim Leonard, and again, this is very much not my wheelhouse, but there are some good and some bad things as you would expect. In terms of how it would fit in Green Bay, I do think it would be a very good fit. The reason I say that, number one, is that his scheme is largely considered an NFL-based look. In fact, a lot of the things just reading through this article about the Jim Leonard scheme, um, it reminds me of a lot of the things I hear about Joe Barry, and, and that may be good or bad, I don't know. But the, the point is they're NFL concepts, and largely concepts that are kind of sweeping the NFL, if you will. So um, I'm just going to highlight a couple points in this article that stick out and then we're just going to leave it alone. But first of all, the Jim Leonard defense, if you'll recall, one of the, the biggest knocks against bringing Jim Leonard in is that we were moving on from Mike Pettin. And the thought was that um, Ryan came up in the Mike Pettin system. Remember, he played football in the NFL for a long time. Buffalo Bills, 2005-7, to Ravens, 2008, Jets, 9-11, to Broncos, 12 Saints 2013, Bills again in 2013, and then the Browns in 2014 before becoming a DB coach in 2016, which makes sense. He was a safety in in college, which I wouldn't hate having a safety coach in Green Bay right now. But hilariously enough, if you look at the connections here, um, do you know who Jim Leonard's first ever defensive coordinator was? I'm sure we talked about this last year, but, but I forgot, so you probably forgot. You know who it was? It was Jerry Gray. Jerry Gray was the defensive coordinator for the 2005 Buffalo Bills. Then, in 2008, he goes to the Baltimore Ravens. The Baltimore Ravens had John Harbaugh as their coach and Rex Ryan as the defensive coordinator. Vic Fangio was there as the linebackers coach. Chuck Pagano was the secondaries coach. So that would have been so his 
His head coach is John Harbaugh. His defensive coordinator is Rex Ryan. His secondary coach, which would be his direct coach, is Chuck Pagano. The outside linebackers coach there was Mike Pettin. John Harbaugh and the 2008 Baltimore Ravens had Rex Ryan, Vic Fangio, Hugh Jackson, Chuck Pagano, and Mike Pettin. Also, Greg Madison and Jim Hostler, lesser known names. But how absolutely crazy is that? But then in 2009, when Rex Ryan gets a head coaching job for the Jets, he brings Jim Leonard along. You know who else he brings along? Mike Pettin to be the defensive coordinator. Then in 2012, he goes over to the Denver Broncos. The defensive coordinator, Jack Del Rio. Very good defensive coordinator. Then in 2013, he goes over to the Saints and plays for none other than Bob Ryan, Rex's brother, who was the defensive coordinator at the time in 2013. Eventually in 2013, he goes to Buffalo, um, the Buffalo Bills, who was the defensive coordinator at the time, Mike Pettin. He got a job as a defensive coordinator over there with none other than Nathaniel Hackett, who was the offensive coordinator, by the way. So he's back with Mike Pettin in 2013, and there's no question this isn't coincidence. Mike Pettin handpicked the guy. And then in 2014, when Mike Pettin got the head coaching job in Cleveland, who did he bring with him? Jim Leonard. So Rex Ryan, Mike Pettin style of, of defense is kind of his upbringing when he was playing in the NFL. That was his understanding of NFL defenses. And so the, the main objection is you're bringing in a Pettin guy to try to replace the Pettin scheme. The article in this article here is called um, 11 Warriors. It's, uh, I believe it's an o- is it Ohio State. I think it's an Ohio State website. But this was a film study done in preparation of going up against the Wisconsin Badgers, and I thought they did a thorough job, so this is what we're using. It's 11 Warriors, and the title is Film Study, What Ohio State Can Expect from Jim Leonard's NFL-Inspired 3-4 Defense. All right, here we go. Again, just taking snippets here. It says, time spent with the Ravens and Jets allowed him to work closely with Rex Ryan, one of the foremost defensive minds of his era, and a man whose fingerprints can be seen all over the Badger defense today. Ryan, of course, implemented an aggressive 3-4 scheme that relied heavily on blitzing linebackers, imposing havoc on blocking schemes, not uh, not used to facing such pressure. But what Ryan's defense, uh, what set Ryan's defense apart was the way he borrowed concepts from the 46 defense that made his father, Buddy Ryan, famous. The 85 Bears produced one of the most legendary defenses in the history of the sport by plugging the middle of the line of scrimmage with big bodies directly across from the center and both guards, which allowed middle linebacker Mike Singletary and strong safety, former Buckeye Doug Plank, who happened to wear number 46, to run unblocked and make tackle after tackle. Ryan's defense didn't quite emulate that system in terms of alignment and personnel, but did attempt to duplicate the overarching philosophy, again, that philosophy being allowing your linebackers and safeties to to have free shots to make tackles. Leonard saw this approach up close from his free safety position while playing, but hung up his cleats, blah, 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 and then he was under Dave Aranda. Dave Aranda was a defensive coordinator for the Badgers for a long time. That was the guy that he played under. And it says Dave Aranda helped Leonard develop the finer points of his own philosophy. Here's one of the positives that I've seen about Jim Leonard. There's a couple paragraphs I'm just going to read here. You're always paying attention to who's doing well on defense, and they have been consistently very good, OSU defensive coordinator Jim Knowles said ahead of the matchup between the Buckeyes and Badgers this weekend. They have a system, and they run it, and they know what they're doing. All the things that I think you want to be as defensive coordinator, I think they've been showing it having a system that you can count on, and having answers. It goes on to say, Today, Jim Leonard's approach is very similar to Ryan's while also borrowing from some of the game's best minds, such as Nick Saban. In fact, the Badgers operate strikingly like the Crimson Tide on early down. So, a couple things. Number one, 
according to the OSU defensive coordinator Jim Knowles. Not only do they have a, a good scheme that can be relied on, but the players know what they're doing. It's kind of important, isn't it? They know their assignment. They know where they're supposed to be. Second is the fact that he's not just borrowing and, and copy and pasting. As I've said with a lot of coaches, it's one thing to know a system and implement it. Joe Barry understands the system that he's in. His ability to implement it in such a way that it suits the players that he has and to modify it and adapt it, that's the next level. And of course, getting them to understand it. So hearing Jim Leonard has sort of foundational roots, but has been borrowing from all kinds of things. Not only did he, did he learn from, from Ryan and Pettin and all those guys, but you got to understand, he also played for Harbaugh. He played for a bunch of different guys. Jack Del Rio. He also learned from Dave Aranda. Very good defensive mind. But he's also borrowing from other places, like the, uh, the, the Alabama Crimson Tide. And not just randomly, like, oh, that, that looks cool. Let's, it all has to come together into a, a concept, and then you have to be able to make it still understandable to your defense. You can't just add plays on and just keep stapling it on and, and say that you just memorize all these random things that don't have a central theme or any kind of understanding. It's just completely different things with different terminology and different... No, it's, it's, it's largely an ability to identify strengths and weaknesses. And when you find things that are changing throughout college football or, or even just you know different opponents, because especially in college, there's so many different offenses. And to be able to say, we don't have an answer for this, what do we do? And to be able to look outward and say, what is Alabama doing? What is what is Ohio State doing? What are these different defenses doing to account for these types of things? And then to be able to incorporate that into your own system and, and adapt it to what it is you do and make it work, that's everything. couple schematic things here that they go through in terms of general concepts. The Badgers like to bring a safety down into the box for run support on the wide side of the field, giving them eight defenders near the line of scrimmage with three big body defensive linemen eating up interior blocks and a safety plugging one of the holes and inside linebackers often left free to run and make tackles. This sounds exactly like something the Packers would want for a couple reasons. Number one, it's just generally what NFL defenses are doing. But number two, as much as we've invested in linebackers, having a defensive coordinator come in that isn't of the mind that well, who cares about linebackers? Now, you may still be of the mind that we don't need to invest in linebackers as much because we make their jobs easier. But very similar to what I said about Aaron Rodgers, we don't need Aaron Rodgers to make the system work. But if you have an Aaron Rodgers in a quarterback-friendly system, things just go to 11. So if you have a linebacker-friendly system in which essentially there's too many guys to account for the linebacker and he's allowed to just kind of weave his way through the blockers and, and make a tackle, that's exactly what you want for a, a, a system that has a guy like Quay Walker. The other thing that I found interesting, and again, this is a little bit over my head, but to the best of my ability to understand it, here's what the paragraph says. Against the pass, the system can often look like straight man coverage with a free safety in the middle of the field, known as cover one, but in reality, it's a cover three zone with pattern matching principles, meaning the defenders play the receivers tight once they're, uh, once in their zone. So if you're picturing this, you've got one deep safety, and then you've got two corners that appear to be you know up at the line of scrimmage playing man coverage. Cover three is three safeties. So if you have cover three, a lot of times you'll have your two corners basically bail down into their safeties. What they're saying in this situation is they're, they're essentially playing man. They're carrying their guy down the field as they work their way down into the zone. They're not just bailing wildly. They're staying kind of tight while also maintaining that responsibility of nobody gets behind you in your zone. The immediate thought that I had is in order to make this work, you have to have really fast corners. Because if you're saying, I want you to drop into your zone, but not to just bail, 
I need you to be able to stay with this guy, at least stay somewhat tight so it appears to be kind of a man look. You have to have the speed to make sure the guy doesn't get behind you. Because there's no safety help. You are the safety help. You're your own safety help. Well, when you have Jair Alexander and Eric Stokes, it seems to me to be a pretty good situation to be able to put two guys into those sort of, as they're calling it, pattern matching situations. And they, they put a video here with it. And that's essentially what it is. You got one safety deep and they're, they're not pressed up on the line. Actually, one of them's pretty, he's getting up them. He's, he's not in press, but he's pretty close. He's, uh, what are we calling that, two to three yards off? He just inched up a little more. He could almost reach out and touch him. He's, he's a couple yards away. And again, when the ball snaps, there is somewhat of a bail, but it's kind of a slow, I'm going to let you come into me kind of a bail to, to at least give the appearance of man down the field and kind of carrying him with you. And then if he were to cut to the inside, you allow the linebackers to take over, um, which would be deceiving because you're assuming they're in man coverage. So as he comes out of his break, you might want to throw that on a timing route while the corner that was covering just com- continues to drop as that linebacker cuts across and take, you know, that's, that's where the confusion would come in. And again, in my mind, it makes sense that you'd want to have speed at corner, which we have. Because again, if you're responsible for the zone behind you, but you're kind of hanging out playing man, you better be able to bail. And you better be able to cover that guy down the field and not let him get behind you. You know, it's funny, it kind of reminds me of that Jair play where Equinemius got behind him. And I was watching, I saw a video, and I, I didn't go back and notice it, but um, I think it was Aaron Nagler had posted a video about how he didn't understand, he didn't know what the call was. And if you look at the video back, he's he's looking over to the, to, to the linebacker safety, he's throwing his hands up going, what are we doing? And immediately when the ball snaps, he kind of jumps the route and then is like, oh shoot, he got behind me. And then he tries to chase him. If he was playing this, that would never have happened. Now I'm not saying this is the call every single time, but it's not going to happen in this call. Because the point is, do not let him get behind you. And you're not going to try to jump anything. Anyways, the interesting part about this is the next paragraph. That's just the coverage assignments between basically one safety and two corners. But it says, with the back of the defense employing traditional coverages with seven defenders dropping back, that means one linebacker can join the three down linemen in their pass rush on early every snap. One of the four backers will be sent on a blitz, but the offense is forced to guess which one. So the other thing that I I think that could be a complication is, Everybody has to, I mean, peak versatility with this defense. And I know the NFL in general seeks versatility, but essentially the way that this works is you've got your inside linebackers, your outside linebackers, and your defensive linemen and and safeties because a safety will oftentimes drop down into the box and and look as though you have three inside linebackers. Now, you know what the down defensive linemen are are doing. You have no idea what the the guys on the back end as far as the safeties and corners are going to be doing. You know, the the deep safeties and and the boundary corners and everything. But the complication comes in with the inside and outside linebackers and the, and the safeties that are creeping up by the box because you have no idea who's dropping and who's, you know most of them are going to drop but you don't know which. And, the, and what he's saying here is somebody's always coming. And, and they showed one of the NFL-based concepts because they're saying one of the things that the reason that this doesn't work is because teams started spreading the ball out and it doesn't really account for that very well. So they started doing what you saw with sort of the Minnesota Vikings in that double A gap, the, the mug looks where you can see that they're looking like they're coming but you don't know which ones. They showed a play where the, the two outside linebackers dropped into coverage and the two inside linebackers came. Now, that's great in terms of causing mass confusion because you, you're not really expecting that. The problem is you got two outside linebackers dropping. Now, I know Preston has occasionally dropped, and I know Rashawn has occasionally dropped, can you, but can you imagine that on a consistent basis? you got to understand, the Badgers' edge rushers are C.J. Getz and uh, Nick Herbig. Getz is such a big name out here, it's crazy. My wife's family, a lot of the a large portion of their family are Getz. Is a guy I went to high school with whose family is from Wisconsin. He was a Getz. I was a CJ Getz, but CJ Getz is 6'3, 240. 
Nick Herbig is 6'2", 228. He has an 80 coverage grade. He's dropped in coverage 95 times this season. Nick Herbig has. Uh, CJ Getz uh, has a 73 coverage grade and has dropped in coverage 112 times. He's rushed the passer 192 times. That would be the biggest hiccup schematically for me is we don't have edge rushers that are going to be dropping as often. And I would imagine that would need to be adapted, meaning we're not doing that as much. But if you're not doing that as much, it kind of changes the entire dynamic of what it is you actually do. Because the entire point is you, you're looking at three linebackers, two, two linebackers and a safety, I mean, just, just generally. Maybe this isn't the exact situation, but let's just say for the sake of this argument. And two outside linebackers. Of those five guys, one or two are going to come to help. Probably just one, right? Very much focused on cover, you know, so we got four guys, we got three down linemen. So, and that's the other thing it's going to be, and this, this again, kind of harkens back to where you saw with Mike Pettin, who was very focused on really good defensive tackles. Don't really care as much about linebackers because we don't, you know, it's, it's an easier job for them, but you need good. Cause those three defensive linemen, those are the guys that are going every time they're heavily responsible for eating up blocks um, in the run game. And they're also the only consistent pass rushers. Everything else is mix and match, whether it be the outside linebackers, the inside linebackers, or the safeties that are down in the box. And this particular call here, again, they've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys dropping, four are going, but they showed eight guys up in the box, which again is, is part of the, the, I mean, there's so much confusion. You got eight guys in the box, but only four are coming, which you know is going to happen, but you don't know who's coming, who's dropping, and you don't even know what the coverage is on the back end. Even after you snap the ball, again, it looks like man coverage and it's not. And And the great thing about this is you say, well, it's a massive mismatch up front in terms of pass rush but it's not really because it's not exactly you know five against four plus they I mean on this play they got one two three four five six seven it looks like eight blockers because you've got the five linemen and it looks like uh, two tight ends and a running back but you're not trying to win one-on-one you're trying to beat them with scheme you don't know who's coming and who's going so you don't know what your assignment is so while you might have more guys in total when you've got a linebacker blitzing up the middle you've got Sort of a, a three-on-two in the defense's favor. Two defensive tackles and a linebacker up against, you know, a guard and a center. And all those other offensive linemen and tight ends are rendered useless. Just rocking a bunch of double and triple teams out there. But you still got to win. And the, the, the other issue that I have, and maybe it's just a, a more of a scheme thing because Joe Barry isn't really emphasizing it. It's not really his thing. But our linebackers do not do a good job blitzing. They don't. Here's the, anyways, here's the snippet about what I was saying about how it doesn't necessarily translate or whatever. It says, when Letter began studying the college game with Aranda in 2015, however, it quickly became apparent that this exact approach didn't translate directly to stopping the spread offense that had become prevalent at that level. As such, Leonard incorporated the simulated pressure package for which Aranda had become known. With coaching circles, however, it was Ryan who often got credited with their development. With opponents operating in 11 personnel packages, which obviously is what the NFL largely is doing, even to this day with changes taking place, 11 is still king, um, the Badgers responded by moving one of their down linemen in place of a fifth defensive back, creating a four-man front with the two outside backers acting as stand-up ends, so two defensive tackles, two edge rushers. Along with two inside backers, the defense has six potential pass rushers crept up near the line on any given snap, right? Because you got your four... And then you've got two linebackers. And even though you know not all of them are coming, and you know that you have a numbers advantage, you're still at a disadvantage because you don't know who's coming and who's dropping. Despite showing blitz from all six of these players, however, the defense rarely still only sent that sentence doesn't make sense. Rarely still only sends just four rushers. I'm guessing usually only sends four rushers. 
dropping two linebackers back into coverage. This allows the back end to maintain its integrity downfield while still confusing the offensive line and quarterback. And when they say dropping two linebackers, it doesn't necessarily mean inside. It's some combination of the four linebackers, two inside and two outside. So you might have the, you know, the two guys on the left, the two guys on the right, the two guys on the outside, the two guys on the inside. You don't know. The other thing, and again, this is all about adaptability. Here's another example of Jim Leonard adapting. And you have to do a lot more adapting in college than you do in the pros, because although there is some variation, it's not nearly as much as you'll find in college. One example is Washington State, which is a very pass-heavy offense. It says the adaptability at the linebacker spot to, to both rush and uh, rush the passer and drop in coverage was amplified against Washington State two weeks ago, with the visiting Cougars trotting out 10 personnel, one running back, zero tight ends, most of the day. Leonard matched it by removing two linemen in place of the defensive backs, lining up at one defensive tackle, four linebackers, so two inside, two outside, and six DBs that harken back to Ryan's most potent third down look while Leonard was with the Jets a decade ago. But despite the Badger defense bringing pressure from all angles, it still only rushed four. So again, we're adapting, but we're still keeping our core concepts. We we, we take away a defensive tackle and add a, a DB because you're never going to run the ball and you're spreading everybody out you're not utilizing tight ends you're very you know not you got one running back and that's it and you're mostly spreading it out but we're still going to stick to our concept of showing you i guess in this case we're showing five and still bringing four behind the four-man pressure leonard mixed up his coverages especially in passing situations the badgers played tampa two on multiple passing downs but only initially lining up in a single deep look before the snap so constantly confusing coverages goes on to say this doesn't mean that Leonard is only using NFL concepts from a decade ago however he's also including modern complex match coverages found in the quarters family especially when facing more advanced passing offenses like one employed by Ryan Day and the Buckeyes so again he has his core concepts but he's not not afraid to go out and find newer concepts to bring in situationally so we're going up against Ohio State they have a more as it says here advanced passing offense so we're going to change what we do Here's another quote, uh, this time from from Ryan Day. It says, there are multiple up front in terms of the different fronts that we're seeing, the different coverages that you get. Day said this week of what he's seen from Badgers in preparation for Saturday Night Showdown in the shoe. We've got to be prepared because they're very intelligent. They can handle high levels of information and they're a good team. Again, the important part isn't just the scheme, it's the fact that this is an intelligent defense. Not only is the scheme and the defensive coordinator, but the players. Uh... One of the negatives, however, could potentially be predictability and, and a lack of, of adapting, which is kind of a problem we're seeing with, you know, Barry. The, this is kind of how we play, and if a team has an answer for it, we don't really know what to do about that. Um, talking about that Washington State game, it says that essentially there were, there were two things. Um, number one, they were able to get down to the goal line by really just understanding the Badgers' defense. And based on what the Badgers like to do, they put the safety, the guy who's supposed to be able to freely come down and make a hit, they put him in a situation where he has to make a decision every time. He's, he's got to be in two places at once, as they put it. Schematically, I, I can't fully understand it, but that, that was the goal going in. And it worked beautifully. And then once they got down there, what did they do? Well, they stuck in their 10 personnel, which means the Badgers stayed with one defensive lineman at the goal line. Didn't change out of that. So what do they do? They hand it off and obviously ran it in easily because the, the Badgers are very, very light. And, you know, again, you want to really tick off Packer fans who are really tired of this uh, soft moniker, go ahead and trot out one defensive lineman on the goal line and watch people lose their freaking minds. Now, again, you're not going to be playing Washington State, but this is a situation where you look at it and say, dude, I don't care. 
You're on the one yard line. You got one defensive lineman out there. Goes on to say, despite finishing atop the nation in total defense last season, Leonard and his team struggled in their late season matchup with Scott Frost and the Nebraska Cornhawker Huskers, who averaged nearly 6.5 yards per play in what became an unexpected shootout. Frost and his staff clearly knew to expect the cover three matchup concept preferred by Leonard on early downs and dialed up a variety of play calls to attack it. So again, understanding the the principles of what it is they're going to do, right? If you if you know that they're largely going to be in cover three match and you have something to beat that, then you run it and you win. First, the Huskers used 12 personnel knowing the Badgers would respond with their base 3-4 that ensured only four defensive backs were on the field at once. From there, however, Frost often split one of his tight ends out to emulate a more spread formation with both wide receivers aligned to the boundary. So again, we don't need to necessarily get into the nuance, but it, the, the, the problem is, and this is going to be a problem for everybody, that nothing is perfect. But the point is when people kind of figure you out and they figure out what you do and they understand your tendencies and, and, and your tendencies kind of become a problem, that is to say you become too predictable to where they can say with 90% certainty they're going to be running this and if we do this, then we can win and you don't necessarily have an answer, that could become problematic. One of the other things it says is the, the Badgers' coverage philosophy is meant to provide balance to both sides of the field with a free safety sitting in the middle. The Huskers continually overloaded one side with the receivers to create an open man downfield. I mean, it's, it's, uh, all this football stuff is a numbers advantage. And if, if you're going to play with balance on both sides, which is great in terms of trying to find, if you're just spreading your guys out and trying to, you know, they, they cover a lot of ground. But you're in a severe numbers disadvantage if, if you got four wide receivers up against two or three guys in coverage to that side. You can't cover them. But anyways, um, really quickly looking at the Wisconsin Badgers just to get some, some information on their season. The Wisconsin Badgers defense, and remember there are 60 billion uh, college football programs, but PFF has their defense ranked 32nd with an 88 overall grade the lowest of which would be tackling, which is somewhat of a problem. The uh, Badgers had a 65 tackling grade, a 78.3 run defense grade, 81.4 pass rush, and then an 85.3 coverage. I actually just remember JJ was asking me about some details, but um, he was asking me about DVOA, and they don't have college DVOA, but they have a thing called FEI, which is the Frumo Efficiency Rating. Football Outsiders has the the Badgers defense ranked 18th. You got Georgia number one, Iowa number two, um, Illinois number three, Michigan number four, and uh, Penn State number five. Those are defensive ranks. So my thought on Jim Leonard is I could I could absolutely see why you'd want to bring him. Um, you know, I mean, schematically, I don't think there's an issue. I, I think there's there's certainly going to be you know the the biggest one being the outside linebackers. What are we what are we doing there? Because it seems to me that what Wisconsin does is not really something that any NFL teams do anymore. Um, and I don't know if that necessarily translates. And then if you if you're just trying to drop Preston and Rashawn a lot, I feel like that's asking for trouble. Um, but outside of that, I mean, schematically, it's it's largely an NFL based thing. I think he's shown adaptability, which is great. Um, I have concerns about predictability, but I'm guessing if you look at defensive coordinators, you'll see patterns. Of, I mean, any time a team gets whooped, and, and every team gets whooped on occasion, you're going to be able to see a situation in which an offensive coordinator came up with a great plan to beat this particular defensive coordinator and and won, right? Because it's, it's a lot easier to develop a plan over the course of a week than it is to develop a plan at halftime to try to counteract the plan you know, 
which is completely divergent from the plan that you prepared for the entire week. So sometimes you just get whooped out of the gate, I guess. But the question then would be, how do you adapt to that? So say the Bears come up with a plan and destroy the Packers' defense. Okay, well, you're going to see them twice a year for a very long time. Can you make sure next time we see them that that does not happen again? They can come up with a new plan, but they can't do this again. So I, I, I still don't necessarily have an opinion. I think it's a doable thing. I think most of the questions are left unanswered. Um, do I think that he would come in here and be a flawless defensive coordinator that nobody could figure out and would just take the world by storm? No. I mean, he didn't even do that in college where he was in Wisconsin, right? I mean, Ohio State scored 52. Illinois the next week scored 34. Michigan State got to 34. Um, Purdue, 24, I guess, is not all that super terrible. Iowa, 24. Minnesota, 23. I mean, these, these aren't shutouts. If you want to say, okay, how Ohio State's on a different level, that's fine. But And yeah, if the offense could score 25 points a game, they would uh, uh, maybe 9-3, and three, I guess. But it's not going to come without complications. And, and again, it comes down to my, my, my biggest thing. You know, whatever the scheme is, they can make it work. They can find a way to implement it and make it a thing and make it successful. But you got to have buy-in. You got to have good players. And you got to have players playing on fire and, and buy-in and understanding. They have to understand what they're doing and be able to play that at a high level. And if they can do that, they'll be fine. And that's the biggest question. I can't answer that. I don't know if Jim Leonard's going to get the best out of him. Is he, is he going to help these guys to understand what it is they need to do and get them on, on the same page, get them on the right page, and get them motivated to play at a high level or not? If he can, I'm all in. If he can't, then I'm all out. That's why I've, I've said it. It comes down to attitude over X's and O's. Yeah, you got to have it, just like you got to have good players. But I'm telling you, I would rather have a, a decent scheme with guys that know what they're doing and playing at, at a 10 out of 10 than an elite scheme with guys that don't know how to play it and don't want to play. That should be pretty straightforward, I would think. Anyways, I'm going to leave it at that. You guys have yourselves a fantastic day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Goodbye.